All right, good morning, Mercy Hill. Great to be with you. I'm Brad, if we haven't met. And we're in a series entitled Summer of Grace. And last week we said that grace was probably one of the most common words in the Christian religion and probably one of the most misunderstood words in the Christian life. And we talked about what does grace mean? And someone came up, some theologian came up with the acronym that it's God's riches at Christ's expense. And we could talk about that all day, couldn't we? God's riches at Christ's expense. That, that Jesus stepped across that dividing line between heaven and earth and that, that he came to us in the form of a man. I mean, we could go on and on about that. That, that he lived a sinless life and that he suffered and died on the cross for you and for me, that he suffered the wrath of God on our behalf, and he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, and he reigns gloriously today. And, and just like Jared prayed, the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us. We could, we could do this gospel talk all day. I mean, we could just keep going but it doesn't really mean anything unless we experience it. Grace is something that has to be experienced. Last week we said that you can't really experience grace alone. Because grace begins with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Grace begins in the Trinity. You say, well, I can experience the grace of God alone if I'm just reading my Bible. You're not alone. The Spirit's with you. So you can't experience grace alone, but you also can't quite understand grace by just hearing about it. You begin to understand grace when you experience it. And uh, so the question comes, how do we experience it? How do we experience grace? That's the big idea or the big question that we're going to try to get at today. And I'm super excited about this text because... um, You probably know this text well, but there's some things that this text reveals to us about how we experience grace, like on a daily basis. Now, we can answer that question theologically really quickly. How do you experience grace? Two ways, through God's Word and through the church, right? You can't do it alone, so it's going to have to be through His Word and the Spirit revealing Jesus as the person of grace to you or through the church as the person of Jesus has been revealed to the church, and the church is now displaying the glory of the gospel to you. So is it that easy? Do you just go join a church and you experience grace? Like, let's be honest. Some of you would say, absolutely not. Some of you would say, I feel like I could probably find more grace at my neighborhood bar than I have found in some of my worst church experiences. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I just know it's true. Because I've been there. So how do we get to grace? How do we experience it on a daily basis? Because for most of us, we find ourselves in a church system in America in which we come to Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, right? 
I mean, it took the church 1,600 years to get this figured out. But we got there, right? 1,600 years. Like, it took us 400 years to figure out our Christology. I'm going to stumble over stuff today. <laughs> Up here, sorry. It took us 400 years to figure out our Christology, right? So we're kind of slow learners. And then it took us 1,600 years to figure out salvation, And there's still a lot that we don't have figured out about grace. Because we come to Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, but we stay in Jesus usually by a lot of works. By a lot of spiritual disciplines and a lot of things that we should and ought to do. And we end up measuring ourselves by spiritual disciplines, volunteering. I mean, we don't even call it service in the church anymore. Like, it's usually called, hey, do you want to come? You know, we need more volunteers. Do you want to, do you want to volunteer? Like, that's something that's going to be good for you. No, it's service. It's serving your Lord and Savior because you've given Him all of your life. But we think of this whole list of what we ought to do, but that's not grace. And, and I don't think that pastors honestly help you guys out very much. Because we preach messages that always have happy endings. Like they always um, end well. And we tell you what you need to do. And there's a lot of doing involved. Usually. And we stand up here as if we have it all figured out. When the truth of the matter is, we're just as big a mess as you guys are. And y'all are a pretty big mess. And so are we. And so we're in this system in which we're not even really aware of how much grace we desperately need. And our society is set up to where really grace is antithetical to the way that we should live because nobody wants to really admit that there's some need in their life. I mean, we're all about helping others, right? I mean, we're all about if you have a need, I'll be there for you. Hey, but you better be thankful for it. And oh, don't let me share my need because that's when grace gets really hard. When we need to be those who are recipients, when we become needy, we tend to shy away from grace. When we think about what grace really looks like, not just saving grace, but, but grace to need God and to need Jesus on a daily basis. Like grace like Adam and Eve experienced and needed before the fall. Because they had needs in their life. And think about that. Why did they need to breathe? Why did they need to eat? Why did they need to work? Why did they need to rest? All of that happened before the fall. And every one of those needs were like road signs. Like stop signs to, to, to stop them and point them to a God who is sovereign, who's their creator, who's in charge... And to show them the grace that He's pouring out on them. And so what does it look like for us to see grace and to experience grace on a daily basis? What does that look like? Today I want to introduce you to a woman 
who met Jesus and she experienced God's grace in a life-changing way. And she models, I believe she models for us some things that we get wrong and how we too can experience grace. And so I want to dive into this text. And what we're going to see is that great is a grace that saves us from our sin and a grace and a grace that saves us from our performing in order that we can learn what it means to truly live. Look with me at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Now, who are the Pharisees? This is, it's really important that we, that we get this right. Because we dismiss the Pharisees as being the bad guys all the time. Don't do that too quickly. There were three kinds of religious leaders. There were Pharisees. There were Essenes. And there were Sadducees. If you want to keep those kind of in your head right, the Essenes... They were usually out kind of, they were the early monks. They were practicing um, spiritual disciplines. They were like um, those that were out in, in um, Qumran who had, they had kind of set up their own societies. They were living alone. They were all about that life. The Sadducees, well, they, they were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So that's always how I remember, bad pastor joke, um, how I remember the Sadducees. But the Pharisees, the Pharisees were different. Listen to who the Pharisees were. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the existence of angels and demons. They believed in predestination as well as free will and, and the validity of the written and the oral law. Politically, they were more conservative than Sadducees, but religiously, they were more liberal. These were good guys. I mean, these, these were the good guys. They were righteous. They were ethical. They're not fundamentalist. No, that was, that was the Sadducees who were the fundamentalists. Don't miss this. You want to know who the Pharisees were? They were good Southern Baptists, good Methodists, and good Presbyterians. That's who the Pharisees are, okay? Now, one of the greatest ways that the church misses what we're talking about in this passage, one of the greatest ways that we miss grace, is that we believe this message is primarily for sinners who are out there. You know who I'm talking about. Those sinners who are out there. Those evil, immoral, ungodly people who don't have a dime's worth of theology. They barely even show up at a church building, maybe a couple times a year. That's who grace is for. And while that's partially true, spoiler alert, don't miss the fact that in this story, it's the good Southern Baptist, it's the good Methodist, it's the good Presbyterian who does all the right things externally, but who has lost sight of the more important internal law. Love God with all your heart. In this story, it's the good Presbyterian, Methodist, and Southern Baptist who are so busy keeping up all the outward appearances and doing all the right things that they're in danger of missing God all together, which is really scary. Now, this guy, this Pharisee, Simon, why, why did he invite Jesus into his home? Well, the first clue is that they were reclining. So I've got, I've got a picture for you of what this might have looked like. This is from um, a tapestry that... Uh, was from that was embroidered around the early 1600s. This was one of the best um, portrayals that I could find of, of what from what researchers believe to be true of how they would lay down or eat or lay down to eat. 
I mean, there were couches that were arranged. And we know that um, because they're reclining, that means that most likely this would have been um, a Sabbath meal or a banquet meal. And it would have been a common courtesy to invite a visiting rabbi or a prophet to your home. And what you'll see there is that you'll see that these men are sitting around a communal table. They're laying down on couches, which I think we should try this. I think we should have like a July 4th. Peter, I feel like I could eat more barbecue laying down. I don't know if that, I just, I feel like it would be a good try. But they're laying, and they're laying at an angle so that the person to beside them is kind of at their chest and their feet are behind them. So you, you've got to get this picture in your head in order to understand the context. And pick up in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. I don't think we can truly understand the gravity of, of what's happening in this room. Because I think when that took place in the story, I think all the air was sucked out of the room in that moment. And a big part of why we can't understand it is because we don't live in this society and don't understand how few rights women had. Jesus cared for women. And I think, I think it's important in, a, in America, in our context, in this day and time, in 2019, and all the things that, are be, that you're reading on social media about the church and women in leadership, I think it's really important that we look at how Jesus treated women in order to have a model for what this looks like. Jesus cared for women, and he saw them as equals. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't speak to leadership roles in the home and in the church, because it does. But Jesus saw women in a very unique way that was completely unheard of in his time. He saw them as holding equal value and worth as that to men. And that was unheard of. If you flip over to Luke chapter 8, if you look at verses 1 through 3, I'm not going to go there, you can look at it later, you'll see that women are those who funded Jesus' ministry. It was women who funded his ministry, and he and the disciples. Jesus in the early church, they had a very high view of women, showing them equal value and worth to men and with differing roles. And it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure that out. Like, there are differing roles between men and women. Gender means something. Doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure that out. Women can have babies. Men, good luck. Not going to happen. We're different. As much as society would try to say that there's such a thing as transgender, the Bible is clear. Gender is specific, and it means something. And Jesus looked in a culture, well, let me describe, I've got a quote for you. This is what the culture was like. Jesus was completely countercultural for his time. Herbert Lockyer says this in All the Teachings of Jesus. Under Roman law, women could not intervene in the government of the family, nor in industrial or commercial affairs, nor in public matters. All of the relatives of a woman 
could inflict upon her the severest penalties in case of certain offenses. She was not the equal of her husband, but treated more or less as an adopted ward. All her property became her husband's. All her earnings were his. Her children need not obtain her consent to marry, for the children were not reckoned to be in the family of the mother, but of the father. She was not a person in her own right. That's the context of this story when this particular woman invites herself to the party. And this wasn't just any woman. Look at what the scriptures, how the scriptures describe her. She was a woman of the city who was a sinner. So she could have been considered a sinner ceremonially who was impure. And that could have been for a lot of reasons. If you're a camel driver, you're impure ceremonially. You're sitting on an unclean animal all day. You're impure. If you're a tax collector, you're impure. But this lady, she's doubled down in her impurity, in her uncleanness. She was a woman of the city, most likely a prostitute, who was morally impure. I mean, this was a woman who wears her shame. She wears it. She isn't known as a woman who sins. Her identity is sinner. She is unclean. She is unworthy. She is worthless in the eyes of those who are seeing her. Now, picture this for a minute with me. She has learned that Jesus is having dinner with Simon. And she's brought an alabaster jar of ointment. In similar passages involving an alabaster jar, usually it was worth about a year's wages. I don't know how much you make in a year. We're talking about significant value. But the question, when I read this passage, I always wonder, like, where'd that alabaster jar of perfume, where'd it come from? Who gave it to her? What was it used for? Knowing who she is. Now, she is standing behind Jesus. Get the context. She has invited herself to the party. And she is, the scriptures say she is standing but that she is wetting his feet with her tears. Now, now, help me for a moment, just like understand, what kind of crying is this lady doing? I mean, is she watching a movie, guys? You know, where the eyes are kind of welling up a little bit, and where one like slips out, and you know, just really quick, just, you know, get... Is it like that? No. This woman, I believe it's a moment where she has leaned over Jesus in a humble fashion. And as she leans over Jesus, there is something within her that just has to come out. And it, it's within her gut. And it has to come all the way up. And it's coming out her mouth. And it's coming out her nose. And it's coming out her eyes. She's doing the ugly cry. This isn't just tears. Like, this is snot everywhere. Like, she, she is doing that kind of crying in which there is pain and gasping that is uncontrollable. And she is wetting Jesus' feet with her tears. Now, it, what... 
Not only is she wetting his feet with her tears, but she does something unthinkable. She takes her hair down. That was grounds for divorce. She's lost all etiquette. She could care less what anyone in the room thinks. She's done with performing. She's not managing any relationships anymore. And this is a do-or-die situation for her because literally what is the risk that she has taken in coming in before a religious leader, before a Pharisee, before Jesus, a rabbi? The religious risk that she has taken, if she's found guilty of adultery, if she's found guilty of being a prostitute, what could have happened to her by her family? She could have been stoned. Literally, life and death are hanging in the balance. But she seems to no longer care what other people think. And she begins to wipe Jesus' feet to clean them. Her tears have dropped on them. And with her hair, she is Wiping his feet. Now pick up in verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, is this, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You see what Simon's so concerned with? He's so concerned with appearance and with moral and ethical behavior so concerned that he misses the heart of the woman altogether. He also missed Jesus. Sometimes we can get so hung up on doing the right thing and having the right belief system and the right theology that in the middle of our own self-righteousness and striving and working hard to be better than everyone else, we can completely miss Jesus. And that's exactly what happened to Simon. And it happens to us if we aren't careful. We can easily miss God's grace that He desires to pour into our lives. And we end up with a set of all the things that we should and ought to do. Now look at verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not pay, canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. In the, in the story, the first debtor, he owed about a year and a half wages. The second debtor, he owed about two months wages. There's no specific word in the Hebrew language for gratitude. And so, or for thankfulness. And so Jesus said, which one, will, which one loved more? Which one is most grateful? What's Jesus getting at in this story that he begins to tell? You know, Jesus was just like, hey, can I tell you a story? Like Jesus come out of left field with something. Like, can I tell you a story? Yeah, tell your story. Jesus would start. What's Jesus getting at? How does this relate to the woman and Simon the Pharisee? Well, Jesus explains. Let's see how he ends this story in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, get this picture. He's not looking at Simon. He's talking to Simon. Okay? Think how, think how angry this made Simon. He's talking to Simon. He's looking at the woman. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon... Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
He gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus looks at this woman, who's likely by this point kneeling at his feet, and he looks at the woman and he asks Simon a question. He says, Do you see this woman? And the answer is no. Simon does not see the woman. Simon sees her filth. He sees her sin. And he sees her shame. But he does not see her. Paul Miller wrote The Praying Life. And he's written a new book. And um, there's a video that um, has been put out about, about him. And in it... He uh, describes the way in which his love for others changed when on a sabbatical he began to study the life of Jesus and he saw how often Jesus looked at people. How often Jesus saw them. And he said it changed the way that he began to love. Because there was a kind of attentiveness to Jesus seeing that was deeper than the physical. And he goes on, Paul Miller goes on to say that one of our problems is that we are more efficient than Jesus. Oftentimes in our lives, we're more efficient than Jesus. I mean, we're, I'm in a hurry to disciple people. Jesus took three and a half years to disciple 12 guys that are still a mess when he left. We're, we try to be more efficient than Jesus. We don't really take the time to see people. Because if, it, if we did, it would slow us down. And Paul Miller goes on to say something that, that if you don't take anything else away from today, write this down. Love is not efficient. Love is not efficient. Now, in this text, before we give Simon the Pharisee too hard of a time, let's just ask the question. Because I think, we're, I think we want to think that if we say, who are we in the story? I think that we think that we're being brave and courageous when we say, we're the woman. Uh, my sins are many. I want to love much. I think we have, many of us have more in common with Simon the Pharisee than we do with the woman. What was it about Simon, what stopped him from truly seeing this woman? It was a lack of recognizing his own need. Let me say that again. Simon was unaware of his neediness. And I'm not talking about the external or the moral or the exterior. I'm talking about his heart. Simon was so busy covering up his own need that he was unable to truly see this woman. To see her worth, to see her dignity, to see her humility. I mean, she is humble before Jesus. And, and the question I have as I read this parable is, was Simon really less of a debtor? Less of a sinner than this woman of the city? I think the answer theologically is no. 
I think we know that. Like the scripture said that we've all turned away. That we've all gone our own way. That we've turned away from God. But I think Jesus told the parable this way in order to gain Simon's attention. And to point out his own need. Simon's own inability to see himself. To see his cold, unloving heart. And Jesus references some things. What does he reference? He references washing feet, a kiss to greet him, oil for his hair. Now what, what's that about? None of those actions were moral laws. They were merely customs. But they pointed to a bigger problem. They pointed to Simon's lack of love. I just want us to end today by asking the question, what did the woman have that Simon did not What did the woman have that Simon didn't have that enabled the woman to experience God's grace and made Simon unable to experience God's grace? I think it's one simple thing. She was willing to show her need. She was too tired to hide any longer. Now I want to show you something that's not original with me. Um, a friend named Jeff Schulte showed it to me, and I don't know who um, he learned it from, but I want to show you how bringing our neediness to Jesus brings us to a place of truly living. And I want to show you how, if we don't bring our neediness to Jesus, how it brings us to a place of being truly legalists. Because some of us are so busy trying to bring our righteousness before God that we've forgotten what it means to be needy. Now think about this story. What did this lady have that she brought to Jesus? She brought her neediness. And what did Jesus give her in response to her neediness? He gave her his presence. I believe that Jesus looked at this particular woman like no man had ever looked at her before in her life. That in the eyes of Jesus, that she felt worth, that she felt honor, that she felt I might be more than just a few minutes of pleasure for somebody. Like I might be worth more than that. I think in this moment that she even felt, you know what? I'm enough. Like I'm valued and I'm beautiful. She looked into the eyes of her Savior and everything that she had ever longed for in a man. I think she saw it in Jesus. And as a result of that, as a result of Jesus giving her His presence, and like we don't think that will really happen. Like Some of you are already on the defense because you're like, yes, she did that, but that's not the way society works because we're scared to be needy. Because we think that if we're needy, that people are going to be like, oh, man, I don't know what to do with all that. What happened earlier in the message when I said that pastors don't help you because we act like we have it all together and we preach these messages that always end well and then we tell you all the things that we should do and we act like we do them. What happened when I said, but... But we're, we don't have it all figured out, and you guys are a mess, and we're a mess too. What did you feel toward me? Like, did you feel like, oh, man, I don't know if I can come back next week. Like, man, we're going to have to 
You may have to talk to the elders. Like, we need to get somebody in here that knows what they're doing. Is that what you felt? Or did you kind of feel like, man, maybe he's not, maybe I'm not going to leave here with him telling me I just need to read the Bible more. Maybe I'm not going to leave here with like some more heavy weight on my back, like we talked about last week, burdened with all the things that Christians are supposed to do. Like, like when I brought my neediness to you, and I said, I'm, I'm a mess too. Like, you're a big mess, and I'm a big mess too. You felt closer to me. Because when somebody says, hey, I'm needy, it actually causes us to draw closer. And when she did that, Jesus gave her his presence. And what is it? what was the result in her? She was grateful. I mean, gratitude just spilled out of her. She was so grateful that she looked at Jesus with all kinds of love. Like love like she had never experienced before. Love that was transforming love. Like life changing love. You say, how do I know that? Look at what she did. I mean, she responds in obedience. She takes a year's worth of wages and she sacrifices. I mean, she pours it out on his feet. She's happy to do it. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. What's her plan for life? How's she going to make money? How's she going to eat breakfast tomorrow? I don't think she cares. I think she's thinking, I feel a way. I don't care if I don't wake up tomorrow. I'm satisfied. I've got everything I could ever need. I can give everything that I have to this man and know that it is enough. Now, what's the problem with this for the church? The problem is that most of us spend most of our time on the last three. Because most pastors say, you need to love Jesus more. You know what your sin problem is? You just don't love Him enough. You need to walk in obedience. You need to stop it. You need to stop looking at porn. You need to stop being jealous. You need to stop being anxious. And then you need to sacrifice more. I mean, Jesus, he's given us a mandate to go and reach the world. What are you doing about it? You praying for countries in India? You got your passport? You ready to go? Like, that's on you. Like, we got to do it every day. You walk out of, you know, you walk out, you go to your job, you're a missionary. Are you busy? Are you thinking that way? Like, we we can load up some folks with some burdens quick. And I probably need to apologize because within our church structure of disciple making, I know that there have been times where where I have said, you need to go do more. You need to go sacrifice. You need to love Jesus more. You need to be more obedient. And you need to go get busy. Are you on mission? You need to be on mission. You can't make people love more. Love is always a result of gratitude. I love my wife more than I've ever loved her because I'm more grateful for her than I've ever been grateful for. Like when I first saw her, I was 17 and she was 15. And I thought she was hot. And I, I thought I fell in love with her. And I did. But we've been through a lot over the last 24 years since we've been dating and married. 
And I'm grateful for all the ways that she sacrifices, that she loves, that she loves me when I don't get it, when I don't get her, when I'm rude, when I'm unkind. I love her because I'm so grateful for her. What does it look like for us to be needy? Because if we really want to sacrifice and obey and love, it all goes back to our need. What enabled this woman to love more? She brought more of her need than Simon did. Was she any more needy than Simon? I mean, his life, it may have been more socially acceptable. He may have had nicer clothes and believed many of the right things when it came to the law, but his pride actually kept him from bringing his need to Jesus. And this is what's so confusing, in fact. His resources and his gifting, and in some ways even his theology, was a hindrance. What hinders you from bringing your neediness to Jesus? Because when we only pay attention to theology or information, we can miss the person who is right in front of us. I've been thinking about this all week. Like I've been thinking about this for really a couple of years. What does it look like to be needy? What does it look like to be desperate? In a healthy way. Like Don't leave here saying, Brad said we need to be needier, so I'm just practicing being needy. Like I could, I could see husbands taking that all kinds of wrong ways. Like, I'm just needy. Can you go get something for me to drink? I'm just needy. Brad said be needy. No. What does it look like to be needy in a, in a healthy way? I think one of the quickest ways for us to begin to understand what our needs are is to remember what it was like when we were needy. Like, this isn't uncommon to us. We were born needy. Like, ask some of the new parents in the room. You have a little one who is needy, and they have no problem telling you about their need, do they? They have no problem. When they are hungry, they will let you know that they are needy. And that they they will scream and cry until you satisfy their need. When they have a diaper that needs to be changed, they will let you know. I mean, we're born with the ability to let others know what our needs are. But somehow as we mature, we lose the ability to tell others what our needs are. And I think one of the, one of the quickest ways for us to connect with our needs is to ask, what are we feeling? Now this is going to sound to some of you like psycho mumble jumble. I'd love to talk to you more about it if you have questions. But just go back and read the Psalms. Go back and read the passage where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like David and Jesus, they were in touch with their feelings and they felt all of them. So there's eight feelings that are on the screen. All of them are, are truths. They're all positive And Jesus felt all of those feelings. He'd say things like, be angry and sin not. You say, how do you do that? Anger means there's something I want to pursue. There's a righteousness that I want for you. So there's a righteous anger that I can have. That's not raging. That's a completely different thing. And here's the deal. Science has proven that our bodies know what we need before our minds can even tell us. 
And so if there's a way that we can begin to listen to our bodies and get in touch with our feelings, you say, Brad, I, this is just sounding weird. You just got way off track from the gospel. Let me, illust- let me wrap it up and illustrate it in this way. I was hanging out with, um, with the Roberts family for lunch. Solomon and I were hanging out. We had fun together. Um, we went to one of Ben's favorite places, one of Solomon's favorite places, the cupboard. And we were talking, and I told Solomon something that um, was kind of like me being honest and open. And I told Solomon, I said, I'm afraid, I am fearful every Sunday that I step up on the platform to preach. And, um, and we talked about that. And I would dare say that anybody who says they're not isn't in touch with their feelings. Because whenever I step up here, I know I'm going to be judged. Did he go too long? Was he funny? Was he interesting? Was it helpful? Did he say anything wrong? And there's a million other podcasts you can listen to that you can compare me to. So there's all this pressure. Like, it's easy to feel like I'm performing when I step up here. And Jessica asked me, so what do you do when you feel afraid? And I looked at Solomon and I said, I pray. Now, what happens there? So I'm acknowledging that I feel fear. And by the way, I feel fear every day about something. And you do too. When I acknowledge my fear, something beautiful takes place. When I don't acknowledge my fear, I go into anxiety, which is fight, flight, or freeze. With my personality, it's usually fight. So if, if I say, I'm not afraid, the, God, the Bible says don't be afraid, just trust God. I'm not going to really think about my feelings. Well, then I'm going to go into fight, which means I'm going to be out there in my shed studying my message all hours of the day and night, and I'm going to be like, Dad, I'm going to put a good 25 hours in on this message, which I never have time for, which means I'm up till midnight working on it, and I'm going to try to convince myself that it's good enough. Problem with that is, I've been doing that for about 20 years and it never is. It might be good enough for y'all, it's never good enough for me. So that's one way I can go. Or I can say, No, I actually feel afraid. So, God, let me bring the truth of what I'm actually feeling to you. And, God, here's my need I need you to protect me, I need you to be my help. I need you to be my refuge. I need you to remind me of all the truths that are true, which is, Brad, you'll never be enough, but Jesus is enough. That, Brad, your words don't change anybody, but Jesus' words changes everything. That, Brad, you have no power, but Jesus has all the power. And and when when I can sit in my prayer long enough and feel my feelings and bring and, and say, God, here's my need for help and refuge and strength. What's the gift that I receive? Faith and wisdom. Faith and wisdom to go, Brad, it's not about you, so maybe you might actually have something to offer people because you're not up there performing for everybody. You're not reacting to what you see in the crowd. You're not worried about somebody answering the phone or somebody falling asleep. You're just saying, no, this is a truth that I know to be true. I'm going to show you Jesus, and Jesus has given me a gift to say, hey, here's faith and wisdom, and by the way, it's enough because I'm enough. Do you see that? For me personally, I've started every morning taking out this feeling chart. And, and at the top of it, um, flip back over to the feeling chart. I look at those and, and, and I write down at the top of my journal everyone that I'm feeling for the day. I just write it down. This is what I'm feeling. And then I begin to read the scriptures. 
And I go, I go, God, I'm feeling nervous about this lunch appointment. And it's, a, it's somebody that I'm excited about hanging out with, but I'm nervous about it. Why? We're going to take that to the Lord. God, I'm feeling hurt about this. I'm feeling lonely about it. You say, Brad, it sounds like psycho mumble jumble. Read the Psalms. Read the Psalms with that feeling chart out. I dare you. Because you will be able to find psalms in which, which David is saying, break the teeth of the wicked. He's angry and it ain't good. Like He's raging. You will see times in which he is hurt and lonely. He talks about shame constantly. He feels guilty. He's oftentimes glad because he's experienced all these feelings and he's looking back at something that the Lord has done where he can completely missed it like that time where he was spitting all over himself and he looks back and he says look at how the Lord was with me and he's glad he got it but it was years later and he's writing a song to celebrate about it I believe one of the ways that we can experience the grace of Jesus on a daily basis is when we bring our neediness to him and one of the ways to be most connected to our neediness is to pay attention to what's going on in our body and just to begin the process of saying, God, would you, by your grace, help me just to feel what I'm feeling and then to bring it to you? Because that's not psycho mumbo-jumbo. That's the fact that we have a body and that's a gospel thing because Jesus incarnated himself. And he said the body was so important that the gospel hinges on it. He lived it perfectly. And he knows everything we experience. And we can trust him with what we feel. And when we feel it and we bring it to him, he shows us his power and his grace. And he gives us himself. And that's a gift. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you give us a picture of neediness. Something that we so badly are in need of. God, I know that I am. God, would you help us in the same way that we came to you? Needy, that first time, in need of your grace, in need of forgiveness, in need of your love, in need of understanding that, um, that Jesus is enough. God, would you help us to come to you needy, desperate, in a healthy way, daily, acknowledging our feelings, God, laying them at your feet, God, listening to your voice. God, I want to pray for those who are here today who don't feel as if you see them. God, I want to pray that that they would know, know that not only are they seen, but that, God, you walk with them, that you love them. God, may you use these truths from this story. God, may you root them in our hearts. God, may we find that Jesus is enough. May we bring our need to you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.